0: Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the Professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite conversations because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Do you ever have moments when you sort of surprise yourself? Well, that happened for me this week when I realized that with my love of historical geography and studies of the land of the Bible, I have not yet created a podcast about archaeology. And even more surprising is Israel Bible Center has a roundtable talk between Dr. Yashaya Gruber and Dr. Jody Magnus of all people. How have I waited so long to highlight this conversation? I'm as baffled as you are. Dr. Jody Magnus is the Distinguished Professor of Early Judaism at the University of North Carolina and the President of the Archaeological Institute of America. She is the author of many different books, including one called Dung, Oil, and Spit. And that is a book I have used so often in a lot of my work. I really think you should take a look at that. She is also leading an excavation at a site in Lower Galilee called Hukok, and we will get to the amazing finds from that site in just a little bit. But how exactly does one decide to become an archeologist in the first place? I actually wanted to be an
1: archaeologist since I was 12 years old. And yeah, I have my ninth grade yearbook photo to prove it because underneath it says ambition archaeologist. So what happened was in seventh grade, I had a really wonderful uh, history teacher. and We did ancient history and I fell in love with ancient Greece and in particular Athens. And uh, at the same time, I was going to Girl Scout camp in the Pocono Mountains and finding fossils of shells. And I had the usual childhood fascination with dinosaurs and it all just sort of came together and I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist and ever since then that's all I wanted to do and that's all I've done basically (laughs) so sort of a one-track mind everything that we dig out of the ground is new right so that's one of the great things about archaeological data versus you mentioned literary sources for example unless you have a discovery like the Dead Sea Scrolls which are new then everybody is pretty much trotting over well-trod ground you know whether they're going back through the books of the hebrew bible or the new testament or rabbinic literature uh whereas everything that comes out of the ground in archaeology is new and adds a little another piece to the puzzle so uh so certainly that said i i i personally am i'm one of the few people i know who i think actually enjoys picking through archaeological excavation reports and trying to put everything back together, which is the ultimate goal of an archaeological publication, most
0: people think is pretty tedious, but, um, but I find it fun to do. So She mentioned literary sources, which is what we tend to focus on here at Israel Bible Center. This begs the question of what is the relationship between the literary sources and the artifacts that come from the ground?
1: You know, when I was first uh, invited to apply for the position at at UNC uh, and came for an interview, my position is in a Department of Religious Studies. So none of my colleagues is an archaeologist. And during the interview process, one of my colleagues, during sort of a, a collective interview by the members of all of the department, kept insisting that I was an historian. And I kept saying, well, no, I'm an archaeologist. And he kept saying, well, no, you're an historian. I was like, no, I'm an archaeologist. So I think it depends on how you define history and archaeology. So if you define history in the broad sense of the word as the study of the past, then archaeology would certainly be, you know, come under that rubric. But that's not general. As as an archaeologist, I see things a little differently. So um, archaeologists tend to see history as the study of the past, based on information from written sources, right, literary sources, and archaeology is the study of the past based on human material culture. Anything that that humans manufactured and left behind and we dig up is basically what archaeologists study. Um, And that means, for example, architecture, tombs, um, uh, uh, pottery, coins, glass, you know, any uh, stone tools uh, it, by the way, does not include other types of, ma- of material that we happen to dig up as well, like animal bones, maybe or stuff like that. All of those things fall under different categories of specialization that are dealt with by people who are not technically archaeologists, but archaeologists, but zoarchaeologists, or physical anthropologists, or whatever. Um, but the way that I, the way that I view archaeology then is it's adding to our understanding of the past. But I, I also think that what, what we're all seeking to do, whether you focus on literary sources or human material culture, or whatever, is to understand the past as, cle- as completely as possible. That is to reconstruct as complete a pos- as possible a picture of the past. And therefore, as archaeologists, it's our responsibility, and I think also from the point of view of, let's say, somebody who focuses on literary sources, to include all available information, and not just the kind of inf- the, not just the kind of material that you happen to specialize in. So um, so I do think it's important to incorporate, let's say, whatever information we have from literary sources when we have it. And that said, it's also important to realize that just like everything else, those sources have to be approached critically. And the problem is, is that many, let's say, archaeologists would not necessarily feel qualified to do that if they're not trained, let's say, in Hebrew Bible or rabbinic literature or whatever, and vice versa. People who do literary you know, analysis wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable Trying to analyze an archaeological excavation report, um, and that—that and that I think is, is part of the problem of our discipline, in, which is that you know uh, people tend to focus on their particular field of specialization and then not incorporate the other types of information because they're afraid, they don't feel qualified, whatever, and, and then that gets left out, and that leads to uh, to sometimes an incomplete picture, or sometimes even an incorrect picture. So, so yeah, so the answer to your question is yes. I do think we need to. Uh, include literary sources. I think a lot of the debates about Qumran, for example, the site of Qumran, have occurred because uh, there have been people who have approached the archeology span of the site without including the scrolls, claiming that the scrolls have nothing to do with the site, which yields a completely different picture. Um, and so I do think that we have to try and, and work, and if if we don't have the necessary expertise, then let's work with colleagues who do, but the ultimate goal is, to, is the same, right? And we all share that goal.
0: When it comes to the Bible and archaeology, there is a lot of debate about how to put these topics in conversation with each other. Are we using archaeology to prove the Bible? Should the Bible be used as a helpful resource for interpreting the archaeological finds? Or does archaeology correct the overly theological retelling of history in the Bible? Everyone has a different approach about how to let the literary and the archaeological data be in conversation together. And at the heart of all of this is how to read and interpret pottery. Really, pottery. How? Well, I'll let Dr. Magnus explain.
1: Pottery is, there's a lot of things you can do with pottery that are really important. It tells you about diet, it tells you about trade, it tells you about all sorts of things. But most archeologists use pottery above all for the purposes of dating, because it is by far the most common find on archeological excavations in this area. We find it by tons, even if it breaks, it's preserved. And so uh, you may not find other finds that are datable, coins or inscriptions, or you might not have literary sources. You might not find um, charcoal. that can be radiocarbon dated, whatever but you know that you're gonna find pottery if you find nothing else. So pottery is a very important means of dating. The way that we date pottery is a roundabout process. Basically, the way that we date things in archeology span is using artifacts that fall into one, or things that fall into one of, one of two categories. Either objects that carry their own date, or finds that carry their own date, or finds that are extremely common in archeological excavations. So things that carry their own date would be, for example, coins. Or radiocarbon dating of of charcoal, for example, or sometimes inscriptions, right, like that. Pottery falls into the category of being an extremely common find, but it doesn't carry its own date. Meaning there's no lab, there's as of yet, no lab-based way of dating pottery. You can't take a piece of pottery and send it to a lab and get a date back. That's we don't have that ability yet. So that means that pottery has to be uh, dated in a very tedious way, which is what I did in my dissertation. So basically what we do is uh, we, we, we look at excavated sites where you have um, uh, a good sequence of, of layers, one on top of the other, what are called strata, and you create what's called a relative typology. So you'll say in the bottommost level, which is earliest, you might have, a, you might have particular kinds of pottery. And then in the next level up, you'll have somewhat different types, and then next level up, you'll have somewhat different types. And then what you do is, you, this is really oversimplified, but anyway, then what you do is you look for, for finds associated with those types and those levels that do carry a date. So let's say in a certain level, with certain types of pottery, you find coins of Augustus. So You can assume, okay, that pottery was used rough, this is really oversimplified, but anyway, you can then date that's those fine, types That's fine, yes. Augustus, yeah. Right. And, and then when you find those same types of pottery at the next site down the road, you can say, oh, I must be in a level of Augustus now because I had that before. Now, this is an extremely complicated process because pottery types not only change over time, but they don't change evenly over time. So one type of cooking pot might've gone out of use while other types remain in use, while storage jars also change differently. And they also change from region to region. So the pottery that you have, for example, in the area of Jerusalem, in any given time is completely different from the pottery types that are used in Galilee, pretty much. So it's very complicated, which means that for every single time and place on Earth, or at least in this country, you have to create pottery type publications. and they don't actually exist for all periods in all in all places. Mm-hmm.
0: Even a quick explanation like this one about dating is so helpful for all of us who are not professional archaeologists, and it is really good for us to recognize that there are a lot of arguments going on in archaeology about dating artifacts, even huge gigantic structures like city gates. There is a long ongoing conversation about the reigns of people like Solomon and David, Were they small local kings whose reputations were magnified in the final edits of the biblical text, or were they actually the strong kings that are depicted in the Bible? You may think that this is an easy question to answer, but the archaeological record in key cities like Jerusalem just isn't as helpful as much as we'd like it to be. So then archaeologists look to other sites— So, for example, in 1 Kings 9.15, it says that Solomon went out and fortified Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So, we would expect to find similar type structures at those sites. And it is true that at each of these sites, there's a big gate complex, and they all seem to match each other. But everyone argues about if they date to Solomon or to a later king. Now, Dr. Magnus specializes in Roman, Byzantine, and early Islamic periods. So don't expect her to actually chime in specifically on the problem of 10th century archaeological issues. But you do get the picture here, right? Archaeology is complicated and not always as precise as we would like.
1: What I what I like to actually say is that First of all, archaeology is not an exact science. In fact, even hard sciences are not exact sciences because they involve interpretation at various levels. Um, But the second thing is it's all a matter of asking the right questions, which is that, you know, people people want to know, for example, about the exodus from Egypt or I don't know, whatever. Right. Um, but there are certain kinds of, of, of questions, there are certain types of information that archaeology is not equipped to provide. So archaeology is like any other kind of science. You have to ask the right questions, the kinds of questions that can be answered by the kinds of data that we retrieve. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say so much uncertainty. I would say it's a matter of, first of all, the interpretation. Um, there is a methodology to archaeology, there's a correct methodology. And uh, and there's the, the fact that people don't always ask the right questions or don't realize that they're not asking the right questions.
0: If you like to pay attention to archaeology, you may notice that there is a continuous flow of great archaeological discoveries that are reported about in the press everything from seals that might have belonged to biblical prophets, or little figurines with painted faces that depict an elite male figure from the ninth century. Sometimes the significance of these finds is overblown, and sometimes they go unnoticed by the world. I do want to mention that that
1: in my opinion, Um, The most important discovery in this region since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is is the discovery of Herod's tomb at Herodium by the late uh, Israeli archaeologist Ehud Netzer in 2007. Um, And it's it's an extremely important discovery, which I think hasn't gotten the publicity that it deserves, because at about the same time that discovery was announced, a TV program was broadcast on the Discovery Channel claiming that the tomb of Jesus and his family had been discovered in Jerusalem, which was, of right, course, completely, right. well, like most scholars, including me, thinks completely false claim, um, but that kind of detracted then from the, from the you know, announcement of the, Her, the discovery of Herod's tomb in Herodium, and I think that that's such an important discovery because, you know, we don't, we don't, hear from Herod in his own words. All we have about Herod is sources that were basically um, uh, hostile to him, whether it was Josephus drawing on, you know, the lost biography of Nicolaus of Damascus, or the Gospel, you know, the Matthew's Gospel account of, you know, the massacre of the innocents. So, um, so the Herod's tomb in Herodium, which he, which he built to be his, his final resting place and everlasting memorial, is the closest we come to hearing from Herod himself in terms of him telling us how he wanted to be remembered for posterity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the that the discovery of the tomb is extremely important and fascinating. And I think it's been overlooked. And I've been you know doing a lot of reading and research on it. And and you know there's a team uh, led by uh, Roy Porat who are still working there and making some more important discoveries. So I just wanted to say, aside from Hooke, which of course I think is very important, but that I think that that's a really important discovery that's been that's been overlooked.
0: I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that Dr. Magnus is at one of the sites that keeps producing amazing finds. Hukok is a site in the northern part of Israel in Galilee, and there is a synagogue there that has so many different mosaics that are absolutely remarkable in terms of their artistry and color and the stories that they depict. These mosaics have been the focus of National Geographic articles and journals and international newspapers have all reported on them. Why don't we listen to why Dr. Magnus started digging where she did and how they came upon these amazing mosaics?
1: I just want to mention that when I came to Hukok and I started to dig there in 2011, it, it was not with the intent of discovering mosaics. That was not what I was looking for, and it's not what I was um, expecting to find. So like, like every good archaeologist, I came to Hucok with a research question or questions that I wanted to answer. And uh, my main research question was, what was the fate of these Jewish villages in Lower Eastern Galilee? Because Lower Eastern Galilee was Jewish in the Roman and Byzantine periods, right? What was the fate of these Jewish villages when they came under Christian rule beginning in the 4th century? Because right now, many of my colleagues, especially in Israel, uh, share a view that Christian rule was oppressive to Jews and that Jewish settlement in Galilee declined from the mid fourth century on and basically disappears. And my impression from the archeology span was always exactly the opposite. In fact, Jewish settlement in Galilee continued to flourish and prosper long after the rise of Christianity through the fifth centuries and and sixth centuries. And so that was the basic question that I came to answer. Hukok had never been excavated before. Um, I wanted to dig, you know, uh, a site with a village of this period. There are other periods represented at Hukok, but my interest was specifically in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. And I also wanted a site that had a Galilean type synagogue, by which I mean a synagogue like the one at Capernaum, of that same kind of style. Uh, And there were good signs from other archaeologists who had surveyed the site, not excavated, but surveyed. But there would be remains of a synagogue like that. We didn't know for sure. It had never been excavated, but there were signs that there was something like that there. And that's why I started the excavation in 2011, in order to answer those research questions. And I would say that, that to my mind, we have answered those questions in the affirmative. That is, uh, our excavation showed that this was a Jewish community that that prospered and flourished through the fifth and sixth centuries, the synagogue that we are bringing to light, which is comparable in size and, and plan to the synagogue at Capernaum, was built on the evidence that we have, which is pretty good evidence in the early fifth century, so a little after the year 400. Um, so I do think that we've so far been able to answer those research questions. Of course, I always say that with every question that we answer in archeology, span we raise 10 more questions that we can't answer. But you know that was why I started the dig. So what happened is, is that in the second season of excavations, we came down onto the synagogue floor in one square. We 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 were very lucky in our very first season, 2011, to open up a square and come down right on the east wall of the synagogue. It was serendipity. We didn't know that there was a synagogue there for sure. If there was, we didn't know where it was. It's covered by modern rubble of a modern village, uh, but we were very fortunate. It came right down on the east wall, a little part of it in 2011, and we basically been following it ever since. So the following summer, 2012, we got down to the floor of the synagogue and discovered that it was paved with mosaics. And ever since we've been just following, you know, the synagogue along and now we've got about now two thirds to three quarters of it excavated. Now, by the way, before your viewers slash listeners run out to go visit Hukok, let me qualify and say that the site is not open to the public, that all of the excavated areas have been backfilled and the mosaics have been removed for conservation. So there is nothing to see at Hukok. When we finish our project, and let's say we're estimating maybe another four to five years, We will turn the site over to the Israeli government authorities, and it will be up to them to decide if they want to develop the site for tourism. Until then, there's nothing to see at the site. Please do not go to the site. There's nothing there. It's all backfilled. You won't see anything. If you want to see the mosaics, what you should do is visit our website. We have a dig website where we have everything published uh, that we published today. All of the mosaics through 2017 are up there um, with reports, with media links, and it's simply huqoq.org, H-U-Q-O-Q. Dot org so anyway okay so uh, so yeah so what we found is that the synagogue' uh, it's, it's an unusual synagogue it is it is a Galilean type synagogue meaning that it's similar in plan to this and also in size to the synagogue at Capernaum but the difference is if you think about the synagogue at Capernaum Carnaholm or Chorazin, um or Kfar Bar, um, synagogues like that they all have flagstone pavement inside. So our synagogue is different in that all of the floors were paved with mosaics. But not only were all the floors paved with mosaics, but all of the mosaics are, are figured panels, that is, panels containing figured scenes, So most of them are biblical scenes. Now, this is unusual because most ancient synagogues if they, in, in Israel, if they're de- decorated with mosaic floors, generally, if you have figured scenes in the mosaics, the figured scenes are always confined only to the nave, to the center of the hall. Whereas the aisles, the areas around, have uh, geometric or floral designs. And what's unusual about our synagogue is that all of the floors, including the aisles, are paved with figured panels. And again, mostly biblical scenes. And um, we have a lot of different biblical scenes, and most of them are unparalleled in other synagogues. Uh, And so, for example, we have two scenes of Samson. One is Samson and the foxes from the book of Judges 15. One is Samson's uh, carrying the gate of Gaza on his shoulders, which is from the book of Judges 16. Um, We have uh, the um, parting of the Red Sea, which is actually not the parting of the Red Sea. It's Pharaoh's soldiers being swallowed by the Red Sea, but it's actually Pharaoh's soldiers being swallowed by giant fish in the Red Sea. We have Noah's Ark with all the pairs of animals. We have, um, we have uh, Jonah, the very first story of Jonah ever found in ancient Jewish art. It, it's very interesting. Um, it's, Jonah was very popular in early Christian art, and people always speculated why the Jews didn't like Jonah, but it turns out the Jews did like Jonah. We just hadn't found it. So we have a Jonah panel, which is also unusual because Jonah's being swallowed by three successive fish instead of one fish, three fish, and his legs are dangling out of one of the fish's mouths. Uh, we have the Tower of Babel, um, and we have a number of other other things. Last summer we found, for example, a panel that shows the showbread table in the Jerusalem temple. We have a heliozodiac cycle, which is uh, a motif that is found in 10 ancient synagogues in Israel so far. Ours is a little different from the others. Everything about our synagogue is a little different from the others. Uh, and we have the first apparently non-biblical story ever found decorating an ancient synagogue, although there's no agreement on what it is. I think it's Alexander the Great uh, meeting the Jewish high priest but everybody else has other stories, has other interpretations in mind, and Maccabean or whatever, there's all sorts of other interpretations about it. So there's just a wealth of, of decorated panels. So first of all, the, the, the diversity of the of the decoration is unparalleled. And a lot of the actual scenes are unparalleled in other ancient synagogues. So, you know, it's like the first time we've ever had this and this and this. So yeah, it's extraordinary. And and actually, you know, there's again this area, this part of Lower Eastern Galilee in the Roman, late Roman, Byzantine periods was heavily Jewish, but overwhelmingly agricultural, right? So it's villages. Um, Capernaum, of course, was a town, but but anyway, basically, you know, you have all of these villages in the area, and each one has its own synagogue. So Capernaum is a synagogue, Horazin is a synagogue. Kor, which is right over the hill from us, had its own synagogue about the same date as ours. Um, uh, in the distance, you can see Wadi Hamam, which was ex- here at Wadi Hamam, which was excavated by an Israeli colleague, Uzi Liebner, uh, and um, is actually the most similar to our synagogue. His synagogue at Wadi Hamam is has the same layout. It's a little bit smaller, but same layout, and also like ours, so it's a Galilean type synagogue. But also like ours, has mosaic floors with panels that contain figure decoration. In fact, they also have a Samson. Samson smiting the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. They also have a parting of the Red Sea. They have the building of the Tower of Babel. Um, and so theirs is very close to ours, but the mosaics are, are not nearly as well preserved. So they have few, a lot less of the mosaics preserved there. Um, so, so, yeah, it's a very interesting area. Every village, apparently, or every town, every Jewish settlement in the region had its
0: own synagogue. This is so fascinating, right? And after listening to those descriptions, aren't you just dying to see these mosaics? I will add a link to the Hukoke website in the episode notes so you can easily click there and view the pictures and see the long list of publications about what Dr. Magnus and her team are up to. If you are intrigued by archaeology, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to this full round table conversation. It is so fascinating and interesting. You can't help but get swept away by Dr. Jody Magnus's is enthusiasm about archaeology. So I will add a link to that conversation as well in the episode notes. If you haven't yet joined our online community at Israel Bible Center, what are you waiting for? We get to engage world-class scholars like Jody Magnus on issues like archaeology. You can also sign up at IsraelBibleCenter.com and earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing such an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.